Nearly 3,000 people lost their lives on 9-11-2001, and of those, 411 were emergency workers. First responders ran toward the danger while others ran away. One of those people was New York Fire Department Lieutenant Joe Torillo. Torillo almost died in the attack when the buildings collapsed, and he was covered in a pile of steel and concrete rubble. He suffered fractures to his skull, neck, and spine, and had internal injuries. He said, I was buried in the darkness. He said he could hear others yelling in the debris. The screams turned to crying, then to whimpers, and then finally gave way to silence. One by one they all died, he said, and I was still alive. He was finally dug out by rescuers who could hear the beeping of his firefighter oxygen equipment. And survivor's guilt followed. Torilla said he questioned why God did not let him go to heaven with his fellow firefighters. Now he believes he was saved for a reason. So he could tell the others stories to make sure a grateful nation will never forget. We will never forget their sacrifice. There is no challenge too risky or too hard for first responders. In the face of terrorism, he says, they chose patriotism. In the face of fear, they chose heroism. I want to talk a little bit about heroes today. I want to talk about first responders. We're going to take a look at one of the first first responders in recorded history. That is David of the Old Testament. Now, if you remember here and you've been with us, we've been in a sermon series about David called Faith on the Run. We're talking about that slice of his life, that eight-year time period when he was running from King Saul. See, King Saul, in his jealousy and his paranoia, was trying to take David's life. So David's out in the wilderness. He's hiding in the trees, in the caves, any place that he can find. And he has attracted to himself a motley crew, a band of soldiers, soldiers of fortune, about 600 in number. Just the sheer charisma of David's leadership has attracted this band of followers. While they're out there running for their own lives, they have occasion to try and save some other people who are under attack. And that's the incident that we're going to look at today. I want to talk about what it means to be a real hero, real heroism. Well, that consists of, of three basic points and just using David as our example. First of all, real heroes, true heroes, they respond. They respond. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 1. One day, news came to David that the Philistines were at Keilah stealing grain from the threshing floors. And David asked the Lord, should I go and attack them? Yes, go and save Keilah, the Lord told him. But David inquired of God, should I go to their rescue? Should I go save these people of Keilah? Why did he even ask that question? Why did he pray that prayer? Because he wanted to, obviously, in his heart. He wanted to do something. He wanted to respond. He was proactive. He wanted to get involved. He wanted to engage. He wanted to help somebody out. Not everybody's like that, are they? I mean, you read a story or watch on the news, you see some heroic action take place. Somebody saves somebody does a saving event, almost every time there's one person or a few people who get involved, but there's many times that number who passively watch or they pass on by. They try not to make eye contact. They just don't want to get involved like King Saul. So Saul was the king during this time period, not David. And it's actually his job, his responsibility to protect his people these are his fellow countrymen. These are Israelites in Keilah being attacked by the Philistines. It's Saul who should be over there fighting that battle and protecting those people. What does Saul do? Basically nothing. He's too distracted by his own jealousy, his, his quest to kill David, to do anything to help these people. If they're relying on Saul, they're toast. So real heroes are, are folks who get involved. They respond. They see a need and they engage. They get involved. I don't talk too much about uh, my dad, but one thing happened at my father's funeral. It really took me by surprise. 
He died when he was 65. It was years and years ago. But uh, my best friend when I was growing up, his name was Byron. We were backyard neighbors. Now you can climb the fence and go visit your neighbor, and they can climb the fence and come visit you. That's what we were. From the age of six through high school, we were BFFs. We were best friends. And when my father passed away, after the service was over, Byron came to me, and he said, you know, Steve, you know your dad was like a dad to me. I said, no, really? He said, yeah, your dad was like a dad to me. Now, I had never known that in all those years of our friendship because of my, I have a kind of a narrow perspective. We call this the egocentric predicament. Everybody can just see what they can see from your own perspective. I just thought, Byron's my friend. He's my best friend. But then as I started to reflect on it, you know, Byron, he basically grew up without a father. His mother raised him. They were, parents were divorced and almost never saw his biological dad. He had this craving in his life for a father figure. And he found that in my father. And I said, oh, yeah, now. So things started to make sense. My dad would take him fishing with us. My dad would, when we'd go to the beach, we'd take him along with us, go on vacation. They'd come with us. Come over. He spent the night in my house scores of times. It wasn't just our friendship. It was also his relationship with my dad. My dad was not a heroic type of person. He was an introvert. He's very quiet. But he saw a need, and in his own way, he engaged, he intervened, he made a difference in a young man's life. Now, we talk about situational awareness sometimes when it comes to personal safety. You know, you should practice situational awareness, be aware of what's going on around us uh, as much as possible all the time. What about emotional and spiritual situational awareness? Are we, we have our antenna up, or radar up for the needs that are around us? Or, or are we oblivious? I wonder how many times, like with Byron, I may have missed what was going on emotionally or spiritually in somebody else's life and so missed opportunities to be the hero, to actually save someone. And I look out at this congregation there are many people who do this, who are situationally aware and who respond and get involved. There's so many ways to do that. We have folks in our congregation who are mentors uh, for students through the public school system who go in. And again, you have young people who may not have a father figure or a mother figure, a strong parental figure, and they mentor them. And I know, remember old Bill Simon? Some of you know old Bill Simon. You look at him, he, doesn't, he did not look like a hero, but he was a mentor to students in the public school system. He was a hero for those young people making an eternal difference. We have some in our church who will take people off the street, put them in a spare, their spare bedroom or in a, a garage apartment that they have converted and give folks who don't have a place to stay, a place to stay. We have people in our congregation who come alongside someone who's suddenly disabled and needs social services but can't navigate the labyrinth of bureaucracy and red tape and who come and spend, have spent hours with them or days or weeks helping them to get what they need from social services so that they can live and survive. We have people in our church who can put together a moving team to help somebody move who doesn't have any family or friends help them move from this place to that place in a, overnight. They can put that team together. I look at some of these situations and I think, what would that person do or what would they have done if there wasn't somebody to come alongside and help them in this desperate hour of need that they have? And all I'm saying is, I'm just reminding us, this is what people of God do because this is the heart of God. I did a word search. You know, you can go on a, a website called BibleGateway.com. It's a great website for a lot of different things, but you can, you can search the entire Bible for a certain word. And I, I plugged in rescue, the word rescue, and I said, search the whole Bible. Scores and scores of references where that word is used, Old Testament and New Testament, rescue, rescue, rescue. 99% of the time, it is used of God, where God is going in to rescue his people, rescue 
the Israelites, rescue individuals, rescue us through Christ, rescue people who become Christians. God is a rescuer. He is a responder. It's in his heart. We are we not created in the image of God. This is definitely what God wants for us. Proverbs 24, 11, rescue those who are being led to death. God wants us to be alert and aware and respond and engage. All right, so that's what heroes do. They respond. Also, you know, real, in real heroism, real, hero, real heroes take risks. They risk. There are risks involved. Uh, same chapter, verse 3. But David's men said, we're afraid. <laughs> we're afraid even here in Judah. We certainly don't want to go to Keilah to fight the whole Philistine army. So David asked the Lord again. And again the Lord replied, go down to Keilah, for I will help you conquer the Philistines. Reservation on the part of David's men. Understandable. How many were there? 600. So David's got this ragtag army, 600 men, and he's asking them to go fight the Philistine army. Thousands of men, trained army. They want to, he wants them to leave Judah, which is their stronghold. They say, even here we're afraid. Well, they knew Judah. They knew the entire territory like the back of their hand. They had their hideouts. They knew where to go when Saul was chasing them. David wants to take them to the border between Judah and Philistia where they're especially vulnerable. They say, David, we're, we're running for our own lives. You want us to try and go help somebody else? They're afraid because of the risks. And the fear was contagious. And so David goes back and asks God again. Now, God, are you sure? Are you sure this is what you want me to do? You want me to go fight the Philistines? And God says, sure, I'm sure. Go ahead. It's going to be okay. I will be with you. Risk. There's always risk involved when, you get in, when you're helping somebody, when we're rescuing somebody, when we're responding, when we're engaging, when we're initiating. Jesus told a story about a man who was traveling. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And on the road, he's attacked. He's attacked by robbers. They rob him. They beat him. They wound him. Leave him on the side of the road. And then three people come by. Right? The first person who comes by is a priest. They say, this is, this is the guy right here, bleeding on the side of the road. He crosses over to the other side of the road and he keeps on going. Next person to come by is a Levite. Whoop, crosses to the other side of the road and keeps on going. Those were the paid ministers of that day. <laughs> that was the priest and the Levite. And then the third person who comes along was a who? A Samaritan, not paid ministry, not even allowed in most of the synagogues, not in good favor with the, the priests and the Levites. But anyway, he's a Samaritan. He comes along, makes the eye contact, gets involved, treats the wounds, puts, him, puts the wounded man in his donkey, takes him to the hotel, pays for his upkeep, basically rescues and saves this man. Now, from this story has entered into the English lexicon a phrase, the good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan refers, a Good Samaritan is somebody who gets involved and helps somebody out. And Jesus told this story in answer to a question. He had been teaching, and Jesus said, now here's the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. And somebody asked him the question, didn't they? They said, who's my neighbor? And this was, Jesus, in answer to that question, Jesus told this story, the story of the Good Samaritan. And the lesson is, your neighbor is anybody who, that you see who is in need. If they're in need, you, that's your neighbor. And yes, you are your neighbor's keeper. It's what God, loving them means helping them or serving them or rescuing them, engaging with them, not ignoring them. So that's the Good Samaritan. But we also know, because what's my point? Risk. We also know there are laws on the books called Good Samaritan laws. 
right? Good Samaritan laws. What are they there for? To protect Good Samaritans. Because as you know, there have been cases legally where somebody helped somebody else out and then got sued by the person that they helped. That's why Good Samaritan laws were created to protect Good Samaritans. Well, it just bears testimony to the fact that there are, there are risks. There are going to be risks. If, if we live that kind of a life, the heroes, heroes run risks. The Apostle Paul knew about this. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul wrote, Let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the scars that show that I belong to Jesus. And what's he talking about? What are the scars that show you belong to Jesus? Well, you know, the Apostle Paul was the, the first missionary, the greatest missionary, a globetrotter, a world traveler. And he's taking the gospel message. This is the good news. What's the gospel message? Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Through his cross, we, we can be forgiven our sins. We can live the most abundant kind of life possible right here and right now. Because life without hope after death is a meaningless life, no matter how good it gets or how bad it gets. It's a meaningless life. So we have the best life possible available to us now as Christians, and we have hope of eternal life with God in the future, in heaven. Well, good news. So he's gone in the Middle East. He's gone in Europe. He's preaching the gospel, the good news. Even though it's a great message, there are people who don't want to hear it. They're not receptive. They don't think it's so good. They're irritated. They're agitated with Paul. And so he gets pushed back. If you read the one-year Bible for your personal devotions, which I recommend, and I know a lot of you do, and I do, then this morning, in this morning's reading, as you were reading in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, you read what he's talking about, where he got these scars, where he says, you know what? In my service to the Lord, I was beaten five times, beaten with rods. I was scourged with whips. I was, I was, I've been shipwrecked three times, he said. He's floating out there in the open ocean, exposed in the open ocean. He said, I've been cold, I've been hungry, I've been sleepless. This was the life that he lived as he sought to save other people in the name of Christ. Risk. He knew something about risk. There are always risks. That's part of what makes heroism heroic. That's why everybody doesn't do it. The History Channel ran a show entitled The Man Who Predicted 9-11. Its focus was on one man by the name of Rick Rescorla. Long before September 11th, Rick, the 62-year-old head of security at the Morgan Stanley Bank, developed an evacuation plan for the bank. The bank's offices were situated high up in the South Tower at the World Trade Center. Rescorla was convinced that Osama bin Laden would use jet planes to try and destroy the World Trade Center. This is the man who predicted 9-11. The plan his plan and his preparation were hugely unpopular with the Morgan Stanley staff, many of which thought Rick Rescorla was crazy. However, on September 11, 2001, American Airlines Flight 11 hit the World Trade Center Tower 1 at 8.46 a.m. Rick Rescorla ignored building officials' advice to stay put and began the orderly evacuation of Morgan Stanley's 2,800 employees on 20 floors of World Trade Center Tower 2. 
Rescorlo reminded everyone to be proud to be an American. He sang God Bless America and other songs over his bullhorn to help the evacuees stay calm as they left the building. Rescorla had most of Morgan Stanley's 2,800 employees, as well as people working on other floors of WC2 out of the buildings by the time United Airlines Flight 175 hit WCT2 at 9.07 a.m., 23 minutes later. After having reached safety, Rescorla returned to the building to rescue others still inside. He was last seen heading up the stairs of the 10th floor of the collapsing WTC2. His remains were not recovered. As a result of Rescorla's actions, only six of Morgan Stanley's 2,800 World Trade Center employees were killed on September 11, 2001, including Rick and three of his deputies who followed him back up into the building. And the rest of the documentary is interviews with the employee, Morgan Stanley employees who had rejected Rick, who had ridiculed him, who had resented him, but now he's their hero. He's their hero. People who are saved are not always, are not always grateful. We know first responders, we live in a culture in a day and age where when the police show up, when the firefighters show up, paramedics show up in some places, they're not welcome. They're attacked. They are attacked. And, uh, but they know, they know the risks. Even the people that David was trying to save at Keilah, you remember one of our previous sermons? Were they appreciative? No. They threw David under the bus, you know, the next chance that they got. There's, the reward doesn't always come for appreciation. Why would people take the risks? Because there is a reward. And it's significant. And it's Rick Rescorla felt like it was worth it. Paul felt like it was worth it. What's the rewards? Save lives. It saved lives. Finally, verse 5, 2 Samuel 20, or 1 Samuel 23. So David and his men went to Keilah. They fought the Philistines. They carried off their livestock, inflicted heavy losses, and saved the people of Keilah. They saved the town. They saved them. Yay, God's name. That's where the reward comes. Fighting in God's name, rescuing and saving people, being on the side of the Lord. That's where the joy is. That's where the payoff is. Oh, you know that. Most of you know John Martinelli, Jack Martinelli, John and Jack Martinelli. Uh, Jack's sung up here, praise band. Uh, he was here in the second service. I mean, he's back at college, but he was here visiting home. John Martinelli's bigger than life, so if you met John Martinelli, you never forget. But back when Jack was a little boy, their family was vacationing in Bar Harbor, Maine. And they decided to go swimming out in the ocean. It was after 5 o'clock, no lifeguards on duty. While John and Jack are swimming out in the ocean, they get caught in a rip current. Rip current. They're getting swept out to sea. And John realizes they're in trouble. And they're trying to swim back. They can't get back. John, you know, Jack's a little boy. John picks him up and tries to, you know, throw him back towards the shore. That doesn't work. And Jack is going under. Can you imagine? father watching and then but there's a surfer who sees what's happening and he paddles over he paddled over and he got hold of Jack and he put him up on the board Jack threw up the water that he swallowed and paddled him into shore saved his life so now John's watching he's relieved of course he's waiting for the surfer to come back and get him the surfer's not coming back so he's watching and he realizes that they're they're waving him and they're motioning for John to swim parallel to the shore to get out of the rip current. You know that's what you're supposed to do, right? We're all Floridians here. 
You don't swim straight back to the shore. You swim out of that rip current. But John couldn't do it. He's spent. He rolls over on his back, and he's trying to catch his breath, trying to conserve his energy, but the, the waves keep crashing over his face and swallowing water. His heart is beating like a, a nine-pound hammer. He's praying, God, don't let me die of a, hurt, a heart attack before I can drown. Finally, on the shore, there's a, a guy shows up. It's all covered in tattoos. It's all tatted up. And he grabs the surfboard from the surfer, and he rushes into the water and paddles out to John, gets John, gets John on the surfboard, paddles him back into shore and saves his life. You know, John says before that happened, he really wasn't, he didn't, he wasn't too fond of tattoos. Now I think he's actually got a couple himself. But this guy, you know, this guy showed up, didn't get his name, he kind of disappeared, kind of showed up and then disappeared. John's wondering if, uh, you know, it's like an angel. It's like a guardian angel. I don't know if angels have tattoos, Scott. Do angels have tattoos? I don't know. But Tammy and I were talking about that after John shared that story, and Tammy said, how rewarding for the surfer to know that, that he had helped to save somebody's life, and a child at that. And I thought, yeah, that's right. We all rejoice. We're glad that John and Jack are, are here with us. And likewise, here we are. We're, we're here in the church, with, like Paul, with a message of salvation that we desperately want to share with other people. Maybe they'll push back sometimes. Maybe they don't even know that they need it. They don't think of themselves as lost. But nevertheless, here we've got this message, not always, you know, not always received well. And sometimes there may be some risk involved in getting involved in other people's lives. But here's the joy. Well, it's like, like Jesus said. Here's where the joy is. Luke 15, 7. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. It means all of heaven, including God, is rejoicing. When somebody's life and soul is saved, what an eternal difference we all get to make. We're part of God's operation rescue. We're all on the team. We're all on God's team, God's rescue squad. I raise my hand when I say, anybody ever been helped by a firefighter, police officer, paramedic? I have. You know, five or six years ago, it was during Thanksgiving, and my mom, Nana, was down here visiting. She had a TIA, whatever they call these mini strokes. And we called 911, and the paramedics were dispatched, firefighters. The team all came. They helped us out. They were so gracious, so wonderful. A couple of years later, there was a firefighter who was visiting with us in church. And I said, I love you guys. And I said, here's one of the reasons why. And I mentioned what happened to my mom. He said, well, you, do you live over there in the, the preserve? I said, yeah. And he said, but your mom... You describe my mom? I said, yeah. He says, I was there. I was one of those guys. I said, man, that's great. I love you. Thank you so much. And then about six months later, we baptized him and his family into Christ. There's rescue, and there's rescue. And the rescue we get to be a part of makes a difference now, and it makes a difference for eternity. That's, that's real heroism. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today, as we said. We thank you for the people who have given their lives to this, this kind of career. There's a lot of sacrifice involved. and Put everything into it, and it's, and it's risky. It's always risky. We thank you for them. But also, Lord, we thank you for people who have responded in faith, who've reached out in faith, who've made it possible for us to have spiritual salvation in our lives. And then you entrusted to us a message of salvation and put us on a team 
Team Jesus, a local church like this one, Vera Christian Church, we combine our efforts and with your help are reaching out, trying to, trying to save people who are drowning and may not even know that they're drowning with the one and only true message of salvation. We pray, God, help us. Help us to be true heroes in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.